every person thinks they would never succumb to the addictions that litter this world. None of us realize just how easy it is to fall into the trap of addiction. We assume it would never enchant us, never impact us, never kill us, but we would be wrong, deathly wrong. The following are the true accounts of just a small percentage of people who struggle with addiction issues. We are honored to share their stories. Welcome. 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 Welcome to Addicted. Welcome back to another episode of the Addicted series. On this episode, I am joined by somebody who I have met along my podcasting journey. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your backstory? Well, good morning, Kevin. I'm Pollyanna Amazing, and I host a little show called Buried Pleasures in my spare time. And with Buried Pleasures, what we talk about is what makes you feel pleasure. What is your definition of pleasure? And a whole lot of other things <laughs> connected with pleasure because, you know, that's what we do over there. And uh, in, in my daytime hours, I'm a nurse practitioner and have been in nursing for over 30 years. So I'm a mom of three and pretty much, as my name says, amazing. <laughs> As serious as I can be about that. Um, yeah, that's me. I podcaster extraordinaire, nurse practitioner, and saver of all people. You and I have talked about it before. What was your experiences with addiction? Well, on a professional level, I worked with uh, patients receiving medical-assisted therapies, um, medicine-assisted therapies, if you will, MAT, which are things like Suboxone, Naltrexone, medications to help kind of curb the addictive process. And in the um, in the middle of all of that, I realized that maybe I had been dealing with some addiction issues on my own, but running from them as as a nurse practitioner or nurse would, <laughs> because everybody else is sick and you're not ever. That's how that works, right? So after years of what I call, you know, of traumatic trauma, that's it. You know, I was working in a trauma situation and was being traumatized and didn't really realize it because I was drinking it all down or eating it all away. And that's kind of where I was with my, with my addiction for a while. So your substance of choice was alcohol? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Every day. Well, I'm a, I'm a day drinker extraordinaire. I like to call myself not any longer, but definitely for a few years, we would, you know, that night shift life, you you're living the night shift life. So you know what it's like You come home in the daytime, your, your circadian rhythms are all out of whack and you try whatever it is that you can to help you to sleep. And if you've ever been in a situation to which your person who deals with um, traumatic experiences of others, as well as your own, there sometimes are days when you can't go to sleep, that there's thoughts that go through your mind that just keep you awake. And trying to quiet those as best you can is sometimes one of the 
you know, alcohol, drugs, whatever. I was never, I was always afraid of drug drugs, you know, let's quantify our drugs over here. You know, like marijuana was a little safer, heroin a little bit more dangerous, but really in, in all actuality, it's all an addiction. It's all something that we, we decide one day that made us feel better. So then we stuck with it. Relationships, we do that too, right? So it took me a hot second. Uh, you know, it's always one of those things where you do as I say, not as I do. That's that's how we are as human beings, right? I um I, I definitely had some time that I was not performing at my highest because I couldn't understand how to handle my feelings without numbing them a little bit. At what point did you realize that you did have an addiction? I think, you know, in the back of my mind, I always knew, you know, I knew. I knew I was doing something that really honestly was not benefiting me. And, you know, it really, it, for me, probably it started even further back than that with food. As as a female-bodied person in the United States growing up, you know, those perfect body girls with skinny waists and, you know, big boobs, that kind of thing, that was um, it's what you always strive for. Now, even if you think you didn't, you know that that was the norm and or that was the the expectation. And you just wanted that. You you know, I don't think I ever felt like I was unattractive or anything like that. I'm I'm way too much for that. <laughs> it's shameful, right? This is just laying it all out. But I think that um food is definitely was my first very first addiction and still is. I struggle with food addiction on a daily on a daily. I'm definitely not um a stereotypical medical provider who is all about health and wellness 24 seven. I, you know, I I'm, I'm a human over here. I still sometimes eat things like I'm not supposed to technically, <laughs> but sometimes you have to satiate some things in your body and your brain to, uh, to come out, uh, you know, good at the end of the day, most definitely. <laughs> so what was it like in your head being that you realized that you had an addiction with whether it be your food addiction or alcohol, but then you're still providing care to addicts. Like what was that feeling like for you? It takes one to know one, right? It really does. You know, when you are actively addicted to anything, I believe that in my heart, if you're a sex addict, you know, other sex addicts around you're going to hang out because you tend to gravitate to people who um, are like-minded. So you're not going to go to church to find drinking buddies, right? (laughs) That's not going to be a thing. Um, Generally speaking, where I came from anyway, (laughs) but you, um, you're definitely going to go to a bar and there is no lacking in people who want to support you in your addiction ever. There is not one time that somebody's going to be there at a bar drinking and say they don't want to drink with you because they're lonely as well. Right. Whenever I was at my highest point of my addiction of with alcohol. And you know, like I was not somebody who needed to drink every day, every day. <laughs> Just um I was a person who needed to drink to go to sleep maybe 5 days a week, to, if that makes sense. I I in my own mind I was rationalizing. You know, I don't drink every day. I just binge drink. And when I binge drink, it's okay because I'm just trying to sleep. So you try to talk yourself into this, you know, this thought process of, oh, it's okay. Right. 
I'm not like those addicts. It's not like I'm on heroin or cocaine or, you know, I'm not injecting things into myself. And it's legal. It's totally legal, right? To drink alcohol, it's legal. But yeah, (laughs) then you get to the point where you're like, man, my face looks horrible. My body feels like I've been hit by a truck every day. And the drinking isn't making it feel better anymore. And it's not really helping me sleep anymore. And I can't laugh my way out of it anymore. I can't excuse myself out of that anymore. Um, Looking at other addicts and having them tell me their stories was like, yeah, I get it. (laughs) I get it. You feel better when you do it. It's just the day that you decide that it doesn't make you feel better anymore is that day that you really have to act on it. And one of the things that I'm I'm very thankful for is that my brain chemistry, for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's all my constant positivity anyway, (laughs) or what it was, but... I can't stand the like the thought or the smell or even the thought of the smell of alcohol anymore. It turns me off so quickly that it was like, you know, even having my husband having a couple drinks yesterday to smell that liquor on his breath was like, nobody. Mm -mm. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Just go away. It's yucky. Take a mint. (laughs) But um, I don't know. I don't know what that trigger was for me. Um, And it's slowly but surely going that same way for food in a way for me too. You know, I this is a terrible thing to say about myself, but I'm just going to tell, most of my friends know this. I used to totally make fun of people who were gluten and lactose intolerant because, you know, I had a friend that anytime we'd go, and this is totally just me being a shitty human. This has nothing to do with that person whatsoever. But, you know, it's that when you're sitting there waiting for them to order and it's, um, can I have? the gluten-free bread and I want you to put three grains of salt on one cucumber and then like a little splash of oil, not a lot of oil, just a you know, that kind of thing. And I know that sounds really petty, but that's exactly how I was. And so now I'm experiencing these issues in myself. And I, I tell myself all the time, I did it. To, I did it to myself. Totally. It's like, and for a long time, I thought it was psychosomatic, but it really is truly, I had it tested. So that's my problem. But that was another issue, you know, like that's why my body was feeling like such garbage is because I had these sensitivities to gluten and what have you. And you know, you down 12 beers, <laughs> you're not going to feel your best. And not to mention the fact, you know, you work night shift in the ER and six different groups of people brought you donuts, right? <laughs> so you're just rolling around in a, a, a gluten haze of glazed donuts and yumminess. But um, <laughs> that's the thing. Like my body just finally said, you know, fuck you. <laughs> you're not doing it anymore, right? That's it. And you don't realize how bad that you feel until you stop doing it. And then you're just like, crap, I had no idea. (laughs) That's why I felt like shit so long, right? You just don't realize it because you try to explain it away with every other thing that you're doing. Well, being that, that you've been in the, the ER and the trauma and all that, did you see a lot of overdoses come in? Is that something you dealt with? Yeah. Oh, totally. So um, the area to which I lived in, and worked in was Southern Ohio, which if you've watched any of the new shows that are out, all the uh, shows on oxycodone and that sort of thing, well, the, there's um, 
there's a, a Netflix show about it. There might be one on Hulu too. I mean, like just that area, the West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, right along the river there was one of the um, epicenters of all the Oxycontin um, disgustingness. And I like to call it that because I was working in the ER and we would probably that year around 1999, the summer, we would have at least three to four overdoses every night and you know, the great majority of them would die because they were just handing out oxycodone, oxycontin, like it was candy. <laughs> they would give you a 60 day uh, prescription for belly pain or for a sprained ankle. So I, I don't have a whole lot of nice things to say about that time in my life because that was tough. And living in a small rural community like that, it's not that everybody was doing it, but everybody knew somebody who was doing it and everybody knew or had a family member that was involved in it. And it necessarily wasn't because these people were out trying to be drug addicts. They were given a medication that they got addicted to and they didn't know that that was happening. They just knew that they needed it to help them feel better. Again, that's what happens. We we just want to feel better. And somebody tells us that our pain is important to keep under control. And it's important for your mental health to keep your pain at bay. So let's help you feel better by giving you a drug that you can be addicted to. And I have definitely held the hand of many a person who's died from a drug overdose, hands down. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily even that you have a connection with them, but it's the people like the parents or the, you know, the husband, wife, whatever, or the kids that they brought in with the mom that overdosed in front of them. That kind of stuff really begins to play on your mind. It really begins to make you think, what kind of parent am I if I'm doing, you know, like if I can't handle my own shit. And then you get in this cycle of feeling like maybe I'm not as good as what I thought I was. Maybe. I'm just as bad. The doubt keeps taking over and then you do it more because you don't want to hear it. So you want to sleep and you sleep and you eat and you drink and you go to bed, you sleep, you eat, you drink, go to bed. And then you go deal with other people's traumas because it's so much easier to deal with other people's traumas than it is for you to deal with your own. And I think that's a huge part of why nursing in general is is so like, out of control right now is because you've taken people who really do want to care for other people. For the most part, you know, there's some nurses out there that are just there for the money. But in the history that I've seen of nursing, there are some people that will lay down their life for the lives of others. You know, you have that in the military, you have that in medicine, you have that in, in a lot of places. But it's just that feeling of I want to help somebody else so bad that I'm willing to give everything of myself for those people. There's a lot of people out there like that, even though it may seem like the opposite. I believe it in my heart. And it's that's why nursing is in such jeopardy right now. Not to bypass that point, but being that for, for, for fuck, man, you've been in it now for over 20 years. Well, not as a nurse, right? What was it like watching the opioid crisis unfold from that perspective? You know, I have a really good friend who's a physician that she in her heart believed everything that the drug reps told her, you know, like this is going to help people. This is going to monumentally make them feel better. In the back of your mind, you always have to wonder, really, like you, you, you're buying that, that giving somebody a pill is okay all the time, every day. And, but we do that, right? 
that's what we do in the United States. We bought into, oh my gosh, this person who knows a lot more about the body than I do can give me a pill that's going to make me feel better forever. And this particular doctor ended up getting suspended. She lost her license for a little bit. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known a few, let's say, pain management physicians who in the area got, you know, prison terms for all of the oxycodone. It, it was nothing to walk, to, to drive down the street and see all the different little pain clinics every few feet with 30, 40 people lined up outside the door at four o'clock in the morning because it was a cash and carry service. So we have this many bottles of oxycodone and y- you know you have to get in line to be one of the people that can get them. And they were raiding these places and, you know, carrying out bags and boxes of cash. And it was it was a rough time in the area. I mean, like that area is still super depressive. I mean, but a lot of towns are, and especially now since the pandemic, it's it got even worse because of the social isolation, because of being home with abusive people all the time. You know, like it's it's a tough it's a tough thing. It's not going to get any better anytime soon without some real, you know, I don't even have an answer. I don't know what real anything could help right now, but there are people working on that. And I'm glad of that. I, I just think that we have to really, we have to be there for each other right now. Um, if you know somebody who's addicted or you suspect they are, just be there for them in whatever capacity they can handle you because they may need you and they need somebody to trust in that. What being now that you're a nurse practitioner, you don't have all the trauma. Are you, you don't prescribe medication, right? What? Oh, no, I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. How do you manage that for somebody without letting them, you know what I mean? Driving themselves off the deep end. So one of the things I started to do when I was getting my own self together was starting to look at alternative forms of medicine, like functional medicine, where you are eating better, you're living better, so therefore you need less medicine. It's like using, they use something called using your pharmacy, your F-A-R-M pharmacy, instead of eating foods that are going to keep you in a constant inflamed state, in an inflammatory state where you have joint pain, you know, all these things try eating more whole foods so that your gut microbiome, if you've ever heard of that, where 80% of your immunity lies in your stomach, in your intestines, um, these are the things that they found out that if you eat healthy diets, you live longer, hello, and you have less disease process and you're happier. Who knew? So I tried to, I've started telling people or, or, you know, prescribing more of a meditation or contemplative practices for focusing on your breath to help with relaxation, doing things that like physical therapy. And that's something that that's been for a long time now. You know, it used to there, we used to joke, if you came in and had an injury to the ER, you would have to go through this whole stepped process of uh, insurance will pay for your visit. Now it will pay for an x-ray. If it's a, you know, bone injury, you're not going to get an MRI. You're going to have to wait. You'll do physical therapy first. So there, there are ways that the system was set up so that you would try these things. But a lot of people just didn't put any hope into it because, yeah, why don't you just give me something for the pain and let me go, right? Because <laughs> pain doesn't kill people, by the way. That's true. Nobody ever died from pain, right? But that at some point in time back in the early, well, late 90s-ish, mid 80s, maybe pain became the fifth vital sign, right? You had your heart rate, your respirations, that sort of thing. And pain became part of that. 
that, that way to measure how, how well are we taking care of you? And in all of these things, a way to quantify and measure is a way to charge you for something, right? That's how that works. That's how, that's how that is. And that's my opinion, by the way. <laughs> it's only my opinion. It's it's fair. It's a fair perspective, especially from that side, right? Being that, you know, there's a lot of people who don't understand how the healthcare system, well, really how any system works, but it's all set up for people to make money. We are a capitalistic society, so it's uh, it's the unfortunate part. That's why healthcare hasn't been solved. That's why people are fighting about literally everything. It's all about money, right? Exactly. And again, I always say, I will say they take wonderful, caring people and put a price on their care and then assume that, you know, that that's okay. When really, honestly, sometimes it's not, but you know, I don't have a good answer for how to fix it. So, you know, I'm, I'm under the, I always say, you know, like if you can't fix you, if you don't have a suggestion, shut up bitching about it. <laughs> In this case, I'm just going to keep complaining about it today because <laughs> you're asking. <laughs> But really, honestly, it's trying to be proactive and figure out ways is what I, I, I totally have been doing this for years. How do we deliver um, affordable care to people without saying, okay, I want to give you affordable care, but you know that drug that's helping you live forever? Yeah, it costs like a million dollars a year. So we're going to have to work on an alternative, right? So you have all these people doing all these alternative medicine things that not all are FDA approved or, you know, and not to say that the FDA is the live and dial on the planet to tell you exactly how everything goes, right? Because that's I hate to say it, but I mean you have Oxycontin who was which was FDA approved. I'm sure at one point cigarettes were FDA approved way back when, right? Right. Cigarettes. Think about that. People are still smoking. They didn't take them away. Why not? Just take them away. If you know they're bad, take them away. Because you can't infringe on people's rights america bitches you can't well let's talk about that that's something else i wanted to talk about is let's talk about the war on drugs and the 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 audacity that that drugs are illegal like i am an, a firm believer that everything should be legal like if you're gonna have one thing that's legal everything should be legal either legalize it all or don't like there can't be an in-between because people are going to do it regardless. Right. So do you feel from your standpoint, being in the medical field, that if more drugs were legal, we would have potentially maybe not less overdoses, but maybe not such specific drug related deaths like alcohol or, you know what I mean? Right. I know you. they have piloted programs all over the world that are positive in saying that if you legalize certain drugs, um, and again, I'm, I'm just speaking off the top of my head, I'm not researching this. So anybody out there right now listening, please, if you find a mis, you know, a miscongruency in what I'm saying, um, write it down and give it to Kevin. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> I, I really believe that there have been studies out there that have said positive things about the reinforcement of safe drug behavior right? Uh, like needle exchanges and that sort of thing. Those are things, those are programs that have worked. But there are a lot of people out there that say, well, why are you allowing people to do that? It's illegal. Okay. So it's illegal in the state of Ohio to smoke marijuana, 
And I'm only saying this because I lived in Ohio, so I know this law. It's illegal in the state of Ohio unless you have a medical necessity for marijuana. Then you pay the government the money it costs for the doctor to tell you that you qualify to be able to smoke marijuana for whatever your given issue is. And then in that instance, when you sign that document that says that you will abide by all the rules of legally obtained marijuana for medical purposes, you at that at that moment lose your right to have a concealed carry for a weapon. Now, why is that? Because you can't sit at home with your medical marijuana for your back pain and own a gun? What? Okay. But then you come to Washington and it's a free-for-all. You can get medical marijuana. You can get recreational marijuana. The community has gained so much money in taxes that the infrastructure here is just being built up and built up and built up, right? And the same with Colorado. I mean, billions and billions of dollars. Is it any worse to smoke marijuana than it is to have a drink of alcohol? In some senses, I don't know anywhere that uses medical alcohol, unless you've drank antifreeze. If you drink antifreeze, you get an alcohol drip, <laughs> by the way. Never drink antifreeze. It'll kill you. You know, in the in the years that I worked in the ER, that's what we do. You give you alcohol drip and, or, you know, alcohol in an IV form and it helps with. It'll neutralize it, right? Yeah, correct. So going back to the original issue is who says what what's legal, what's not legal, the government. And you are always going to have pros and cons for everything. There are great things coming out about the usages of marijuana, or let's even go further, step further with psychedelics for depression and that sort of thing, instead of being on a, you know, a synthetic medication. The studies are there. Legalizing it and making and normalizing it may be a little bit easier to swallow. And and think about this. I mean, like marijuana use, when I, I would have shit bricks, seriously, if my parents were smoking weed in the living room when I walked in one day, right, as a kid. I would have been like, holy cow, this is ridiculous. But that's because that's what you were taught, though. Correct. Correct. But if you normalize it and you see your parents are outside smoking with their friends or they're having an edible or, you know, whatever, and it's not like, oh, my God, your parents are criminals, you know, (laughs) they're doing weeds. They're doing the weed outside. Anyway, that in itself is is okay in my mind. But I will say, think about it from this perspective. I've also taken care of people who the ambulance, you know, the EMS people bring in. And, you know, it's a woman, unconscious, kid on her stomach, because that's the only place they have to put the kid. The mom's dying. Got to roll him in, right? So she's doing a little bit of, you know, a little meth or a little heroin while she's curling her hair in the morning. And she overdoses. Where do we draw the line of of, of our morality? What's okay and what's not? That's That's the fine line. Because for some people, anything that you ingest, such as uh, nicotine, caffeine. Yeah, you have some really staunch supporters that these are all drugs that are unnatural and should not be in your body, you know, intentionally put in your body. Naturally found things. You find, you know, nicotine and, and caffeine and natural thoughts. But that's the thing. Who's to say what's what's the worst? We don't know, right? Or at least, well, we are being told by legislators and people who make rules and laws and that, and where are they getting their information from, from other medical providers, from, you know, it's, it all depends on how conservative you are and how liberal you are about your definitions of these things. 
my stance on it though is is like 100% at, at, at bare minimum marijuana should be legal right like marijuana is a schedule 1 drug which is like the worst schedule of them all right it's on the same list as heroin cocaine is a schedule 2 drug which is fucking mind blowing to me right like it blows my mind with that being said like i know it's like a conspiracy theory kind of but i mean really it's the lobbyists right that keep marijuana illegal keep psilocybin mushrooms you know what i mean so it, it's one of those things that i don't know man it, they because you can't even you can't do the research you can't be federally funded by the government and research marijuana because it's a schedule one drug i feel like if people had more options i feel like the alcohol related problems would decrease obviously then like you said there's a, there's a flip side to that right so it's just and you're right it is a, it's a hard switch to flip no matter what you tell people whenever you tell them no prohibition happened and people still drank i mean it's not like drinking stopped happening i don't know man it just it's it's a it's a hard hard conversation but unfortunately i don't know it's about all about control and then you have the other flip side of that is that if you if you legalize drugs then you have the prison system where's all that money gonna go well and, and what you just said kevin is exactly what it is is it all boils down to where's the money if lobbyist groups have money which we all know that let's think about it uh guns rights People have money. People with alcohol, tobacco, firearms, that's big money. And the, you know, big pharma, big money. These are the people who are going to whatever they can. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but this is it. You know, like this is, this is real life and in the world. If you have the money, you win. That is how it works because money gain, garners power. What do they say? The victor in war always writes the history. Exactly. That's exactly it. And you know what? He was writing it, drinking a bottle of Blanton's. I'm just saying, you know, you've seen these these reenactments, this historical reenactments. They're not drinking water over their kids. They're drinking alcohol. They're drinking caffeine. They're drinking things that make them feel good. Hello, because they're human. And that's what addiction comes from. Addiction comes from the need, the want to feel those happy chemicals in our brain. And that's why you can get it from starch, <laughs> you know, like sugar makes us feel good. That's why we freaking eat it. That's why we love it. And it's getting to the point where you can manage those cravings, those wants. That's where you have to get. But you're not going to get there by trying to deny yourself the pleasure of things. It just doesn't work that way. You have to have something that kicks on your dopamine for you. You have to. If you don't, then you're sad. And then you get into a cycle of poor choices, which I've totally done in my life. I've been a poor chooser a couple of times, a couple of occasions. But here I am sitting here on a lovely Sunday morning in cloudy Seattle, just <laughs> talking about addiction. But by the way, just so everybody knows out there that this wonderful cup of tea that I've been sipping on, it took me two hours to make almost because I didn't realize my tea kettle wasn't plugged in. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's so cool right now. <laughs> so when you finally did get yourself sober, right? We'll go back. We kind of got off topic on a tangent right there for a little bit, but that's all yeah, right. Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> When you finally did get sober or when you realized that you needed to work on yourself and take care of your addiction, what tools did you utilize to help yourself stay sober? 
really honestly, um, meditation, contemplative practices. I am not necessarily one that will sit in, um, in a meditation pose, you know, like on a pillow, whatever. That's not necessarily what I always do. I do a lot of guided meditation. I do a lot of walking meditation. There is a, a website and I believe it's contemplativepractices.org, I believe is what it's called. And it gives you there's like a, a meditation tree, like contemplative practices tree. And it, you know, like there are so many things when people say you need to meditate and your mind straight goes to that guy sitting on a pillow going ohm, right? That's not exactly it, right? That's not, that's not exactly what it has to be. It's something that can, you can focus on to be in the moment for just a few minutes of the day because we are all really terrible people about thinking about all the terrible things we did yesterday or 10 years ago or when we were a kid. Uh, and then conversely thinking, oh my God, I got to work all week and I have this project due and oh my God, this patient's coming in and I'd rather die than go to work. <laughs> but you know, we get in those cycles. So what I did was I started saying to myself, what do you want? What exactly is it that you want out of life? And are you willing to bet your own life on it? Like if you want to be an alcoholic, go ahead. You can totally do that. Because you're going to look old really quick. Your teeth are going to be gross. And eventually, you know, you're going to be a bartender somewhere. Not that I'm, I'm not cutting on bartenders, by the way. But I think like where I am in my life right now, going to be a bartender would be really fun at times. But then also... I've never, ever been beat up by somebody who was just high on marijuana in the ER, but I have totally been like knocked unconscious by guys who were drunk before. So I want to avoid all of that as, as much as possible. But I just, um, I, I had to sit with myself and be like, okay, this is go time. You have a family, you have shit you have to be responsible for, and your health is declining. What are you going to do about it? And it wasn't like a religious thing. It wasn't like, you know, I prayed to God to help me get better. It wasn't like I was begging my friends and family to do an intervention, you know. I don't even think that they knew, you know, because it, it was not like all of us, we're all nurses, you know, we all were, we are all involved in unhealthy behaviors. And that's a huge thing that you have all these unhealthy people taking care of people who are sick and they're just hanging on by a thread. So that's what I did. I started, I, I journal a lot because I like to write things down. And when I say journaling, sometimes I write things down. I take pictures a lot and I annotate my pictures of how I'm feeling in the moment, because that's another easy way to get your feelings out. Like, um, I'm going to look at this big, blue, beautiful sky with all these fluffy clouds. And how am I feeling today? Dope, right? <laughs> so I'll write dope. I feel dope. <laughs> or um, like right now, it's so dark outside. It looks like it's nighttime. So it's like blah, right? So I have those to reference. In that moment, I took a picture and that's how I was feeling. I, I think sometimes I have pictures of like a, a, a thing, a chapstick laying on a desk. Like that. what's that make you feel like? Soft. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, chapstick, soft for your lips. That's how I did it. And I know that there are, you know, there's so many ways that people get clean or, you know, try to write out their addictions and, and whatever. 
But all I say is if you fail a day, jump back on that horse because there were totally times when I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to go drink with my friends just so I can have a good time because that social lubricant of alcohol is it's such a potent thing. You can laugh, you can giggle, you can be an idiot, you can do all the things that you never thought you could. You could jump off the top of a car and fly like Superman, or at least you think you can when you're super drunk, or, you know, jump into a flower bed and flop like a fish. Did you ever, <laughs> Did you ever see those videos on YouTube years ago? where they would say, I can't remember what the name of the fish, but anyway, they would just yell walleye and people would just jump on the ground and start flopping like fish. Okay. <laughs> this is a true thing. This is a true thing. So um, I can't remember what it is. Uh, somebody out there, please email Kevin and tell him what it is. But yeah, so these these guys would just, my, my husband and his buddies, other ER nurses, of course, <laughs> We just um, start flopping like a fish, just in the middle of a street, in the middle of a like city block. Who cares? They would just be idiots and do that kind of stuff. I'm telling you. So if you don't know a nurse, hang out with one for a little bit. They're cool people. Have <laughs> a sick sense of humor and all that cool stuff, for sure. Oh, I'm sure. How long has it been since you quit drinking altogether? Almost three years now. Total of three years. I'm, you know, I say three years. I may have had a sip of a cocktail or something in between. I don't think I've finished an, a complete drink in three years. Simply because, honest to God, it turns me off completely. The taste of it. I don't know what happened. I have no idea what happened because I'm one of those people like I totally can drink beer. I could totally drink wine. I hate that dry wine taste. It's disgusting. If you gave me a screw top bottle of wine that tastes like Kool Aid, I was all over it though. Um, <laughs> like a nice little Moscato down, but, um, an Amaretta sour or something like that. I was always like that kind of like a fruity kind of not, not crazy fruity drinks, but you know, like vodka, you could give me a full glass of vodka and a shot of cranberry in it. And I would be happy as a lark back in the day. And we're talking about like, pint glass. So I had a, I had an alcohol issue and, you know, my, my good friend, Andrew, who I absolutely love, we used to, when I was in nurse practitioner school, as a matter of fact, cause I was working in the ER and on Tuesday nights is pub night, UA pub in Columbus, Ohio. Well, I guess it's uh, in Arlington, but anyway, it's called UA because it's upper Arlington. We would go there and we would drink and I'm not kidding you. We would drink. And one night he, I was, I got in my car he was following me home, like following me to go back to the highway where I live. And um, he called me. He's like, pull the fuck over right now. And I'm like, what? Okay. Okay. He's like, you're running up on the curb. Do you not, uh, do you not know that you're running up on the curb? No, I had no idea. So he pulled me over in the parking lot and, you know, I have a push button start in my RAV, my super RAV4 experience. And um, he's like, give me your keys. I'm like, dude, I don't have any keys. I don't know where keys are. <laughs> So he ended up driving me home, and that was the last time that I ever did my pint glasses of vodka. That's probably been four years ago. That's when you know you have a problem, by the way, when you're ready to drive drunk, when you don't realize that you're so drunk. And then you find out the next day that you drank six pint glasses of vodka, and you're still walking. Um, not a good idea. Yeah. So that realization, as funny as the story totally is, and, and Andrew loves to tell that story. He's such a little bitch. Um, <laughs> he tells that story all the time. 
And and I'm laughing about it now, but in all honesty, what a serious, terrible thing. I could have killed myself or somebody else or multiple people. But I, I, I was so deep into it and I'm flippant about it. Like, oh yeah, I've got a drinking problem. Yeah, sure. It's so cool. I'm still drinking though. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's a um it's a hard sell when you're the one that has the problem and you don't believe it because you're still you're still cool shit over here drinking with all your friends. And that's a really hard thing to to deal with too is when you stop drinking and you're not going out to the bars with your friends anymore. They're not necessarily all the same friends. I mean, I still believe me. I still hang around with some of the same people that I did back then, but it's not the same. It's not the same anymore. And it's not to say that it's less. I think honestly, you you become such a family in that realm of addictive behaviors and what have you, that you just are searching for other people. And you know them when you see them, you recognize each other. Yeah, absolutely. And what about like with, with that, you know, as you were talking about driving drunk and I mean, it's, it's gotta be something that probably hits you later on when you were laying in bed, you know, not drinking and thinking, fuck, like I could have hurt somebody the way that I've seen people come into the ER, right? Oh yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Hands down. I would love to tell you that I've never taken care of another medical provider that tried to kill themselves with drugs or alcohol because I totally have. You know, as much as we're talking about this now, if somebody were to talk to me about my addictive behaviors back then, I would have been like, fuck off. I don't care. It's This is me. Uh, you do you, I'll do me, go ahead. But it's what you, you have to have that realization click in your own brain, because if you don't have that realization to click in your own brain, then you're, it's pointless. It's pointless. You can watch. I watched so many thousands of people, so many thousands of peoples take their own lives, take the lives of others with the use of drugs and alcohol. And all it showed me is that we have so much work to do. And if you are somebody out there that has an idea on how to make things better, write that shit down and get it published immediately. Because you might not think that this is something that could help thousands of people. Maybe if it just helped one person, fucking help that one person. That's it. Right. Because if my friend hadn't said to me, hey, dumbass, give me your keys, I potentially could have really done some damage to my own family or somebody else's. And I think that's what got me. And again, you know, was that the first time I've ever driven drunk in my life? Probably not. Just saying. Um, We all get lucky sometimes. Is that how that goes? You know, like I've definitely driven home drunk before. I, I didn't, you know, like that was never the norm practice for me. But I definitely would get in the car with my husband who had been drinking in hopes that he would make sure that I got home safe. You know what I mean? I talked to somebody yesterday. Uh, She was an alcoholic and she had gotten a DUI. And in one of her groups, she heard the, the most profound saying that she'd ever heard was she's it was somebody said this was the 550th time that I've driven drunk, you know, but this is the first time I got a DUI. And it's like, it's like you don't, when something happens, it's usually not your first 10th, 15th time of driving drunk or driving high. It's usually when you're just to the point where you don't even realize like you were, oh shit, I'm driving on a curb and you're not even, you know what I mean? It's not even correlating in your brain. Like, oh fuck, I'm up on the curb right now. Right. I had no idea. 
I really honest. And the next morning, the best part of the story is my little friend, Andrew. I mean, like we've been friends for years now, probably 10 years. And he's just the teeniest tiny. I call it like, listen, this he, he, he's okay with this term. I call him my pocket gay. He's a teeny tiny guy, right? And so <laughs> sorry if that offends anybody, but that's okay between the two of us. And so the next morning when I woke up, of course, you know, like I'm halfway in the bed and halfway not. And I'm looking over thinking, who in the hell is in my bed, right? Like, where am I? And this is not something that I did on a... My husband's going to be pissed. Right, right. Like, where the fuck am I, right? But really, honestly, it was my husband had come home from work because he worked night shift too. He came home from work um, and was sleeping in the bed, but left me... naked halfway in the bed and halfway out of the bed. And my friend Andrew was in my daughter's bedroom sleeping, which is just totally hilarious to me because in that moment, that's another thing that you have to talk about is the poor decision making that happens when you are under the influence of chemicals of any sort. They definitely push that ceiling, that that threshold of what's acceptable, like that I don't give a fuck moment. <laughs> When you're drunk or high, it takes on a whole new meaning. Like, oh, uh, that cliff, that 50-foot cliff, you want me to jump off that? No way when I'm sober. Oh, you give me a couple drinks. Did you have in that water? Let's go. <laughs> it's not necessarily the best thing to do. It doesn't necessarily make all the sense, you know? But, uh, but yeah, but we do it. Because why? Because it makes our brains tingle. Yeah. Makes your brains tingle, makes you feel good. And that's all we want to do in the world is feel good. It feels really good, right? It feels really good to be happy and giggle and laugh like an idiot and fall on your butt and be silly until you can't pay your bills and your wife leaves you or your spouse, you know, your spouse leaves you and you're fucked, right? Because all you wanted to do in the beginning was just have a good time, but now it's turned into something that's not exactly a good time. So, moderation, moderation, moderation. I'm not a teetotaler. I don't want people to, you know, like I have a lot of fun when some of my friends have been drinking, you know, it's like, you're an idiot. I love this. So it's that, that's a kind of hard thing. And it's, it's the same with food too, though, you know, being addicted to food absolutely runs you in the same thing. Like food's legal. Hello. Hello. We can be, you know, we can eat as much as we want. We can eat anything we want except penguins. That's illegal. Touch, don't touch the penguins. But you know, somebody out there is eating one. Think about it. Okay. Right. Exactly. So that is, um, that's a thought, right? The accessibility and ease of getting things that can intoxicate you or make you altered. Food can make you altered. Think about after a big fat Thanksgiving dinner, you are altered, right? You are like in a food coma. You are ready to snuggle up and sleep for the next week and your stomach hurts because you've eaten so much and you have heartburn and you, you're bloated. You got gas. You just want to die. But damn, that was good, wasn't it? <laughs> Mammal's banana pudding is on spot this year. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Those are the things. And then think about that too. Holidays like Thanksgiving. In your mind, is there anything that tasted better than some certain person's turkey or mashed potatoes? Or there, It sticks in your brain for the whole entire year. And you're like, dude, I can't wait to hear and have this food because it's so amazing. So you're jonesing for fucking mashed potatoes for a whole year. (laughs) Do you equate or have you seen people struggle with food addiction the same way as they would as like a as a substance? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a really good friend actually right now that's in the hospital. She just had another portion of her leg removed because of her diabetes. It's unfortunate, but you know what? When you can't stop eating and you can't take control, because 100%, if you were to set a glass of wheatgrass juice in front of me versus a Dr. Pepper, I'm going to throw the wheatgrass juice at you every time. Not that drinking Dr. Pepper is healthy, but damn, it tastes good. I love it. I love a hot Dr. Pepper, man. I will drink that all day long. Like it can be sitting in the car all day long, hot. I don't care. It's delicious to me, but I don't, I try not to drink it too much because I know what it does. It's the same as drinking acid. You don't need it in your body. It doesn't help your immunity. It does not help your inflammatory processes in your body. So, but it tastes good. It's got sugar, (laughs) you know, that's it. I can attest to that actually though, because I used to drive, uh, uh, deliver, you know, like be a delivery driver or whatever. And I would get loads of the chemicals that go into soda and it's actually hazmat. It's corrosive, flammable material. And that's the thing when people are bitching about the COVID injections, I mean, get out of here. You're drinking acid. And if you're worried about being tracked, stop, put your cell phone down. No, I'm just kidding. I've got to stop that. But anyway, but no, food, the, the chemical composition of sugar is one molecule off cocaine. There is a reason why we are addicted to substances, caffeine, nicotine. I mean, these are substances that makes our little happy brains happier. Uh, and, you know, marijuana, same thing. Like there are all of these things that happen in a cascading way that just make you want it more. It's the same with sex. It's the same with anything that makes you feel good. That's why moderation for people is sometimes very difficult. That is why our society, the United States in itself, has more obesity, more um, healthcare costs based on the fact that these, this is what we've done. We have a whole bunch of people who can't control themselves. So somebody tells them in a, an authoritative position, such as a medical provider, that this pill is going to help you and this is going to be great for you and everything is going to be fantastic. But guess what? That's not always true. We always want to do the best. We have the potential to always want that, but it doesn't always happen that way, unfortunately. So the moral of that story is, is be careful what you eat, drink, smoke, hug on, smooch on, be careful. Make good choices, friends. Make good choices. I still find myself as an addict, by the way. I, I'm a food addict. I'm addicted to food. It, it's a struggle for me. Not necessarily caffeine. Um, definitely, definitely. Well, caffeine in the form of drinks. I, I, I'm, I'm, I quit that a couple years ago, too. Well, I mean, like, I drink decaf, which still has some caffeine in it. But I limit myself to one a day because I'm so good. But I'm trying to figure out nat- more natural sources of energies, you know. So I do a little bit more fruits and vegetables and that kind of junk that sounds really super cool, doesn't it? Don't <laughs> No, it doesn't. Sounds stupid. Donuts and cereal sounds great. Right. <laughs> but see, that's my struggle right there. Do you see like that's my my deflection is to laugh about it. But in my mind, all I'm thinking right now is I haven't had breakfast and I want a bowl of fruity pebbles, but I'm not going to eat it cuz I don't want cancer. Da da. So what is the best advice you could give somebody who might be addicted or, you know what I mean, on the fence of trying to get themselves sober from the medical standpoint and from somebody who has also been addicted? Sure. So 100%, my saving grace is the people that I keep around me, right? Now, 
Having a good support system is not easy for everybody. Not everybody has it. But right now in this day and time, there is a Facebook or Twitter or Instagram group for anything. There are if there are resources out there. If you need help for some single problem or some multiple problems, there's a group out there that people can help you or at least have, give you um, a source of refuge, somebody to talk to. And if you want to get technical with finding a healthcare provider that will help you through your addictive processes, you know, everybody can benefit from counseling of some sort. That's why I say start with um, friends and family first, people who you can trust, but also not your friends and family don't always 100% give you the best advice either. (laughs) That can be an issue. So finding a medical provider out there that can help you. Whether it be just a, a like a, a social worker, a counselor, a drug, a, a, an addiction counseling uh, service, they're out there, and a lot of them are very low cost at this point. There are some no cost as well, but you just have to really look for them. Also, um, little known fact that if you get to the point where you are incarcerated because of your addictions, you can be court ordered help. And I suggest people do that. I take advantage of that, man. If you've gotten into the point where you're in trouble, take advantage of court ordered anything. You're going to be there anyway. Just do it and make the best of it. And that's that's another thing that you have to think about too, Kevin, is whether or not you are ready to receive the help that you're asking for. Because some people really do get into, they want the help, but can't accept it. So it's all well and fine to want it, but you really do have to be ready because there are a lot of bad things that can happen to you if you get in with the wrong counseling group, let's even say. You know, it can turn you against it completely. So I always tell my patients, like if you find somebody that you're not jiving with, if your primary care person or whoever your, you know, your your counselor, your psychiatrist, your psychologist, whatever, if you don't like them, go away from them. There are more out there. And you know, all of these online services that have started popping up like um, Cerebral or Mindbloom or any of those that are doing mental health outside, like tele- telehealth stuff. Find somebody that you can speak to and see, but do your own research too, guys. Be- you have to be able to understand what is being prescribed for you in the form of whether it be a meditation practice or an oral medication, whatever it is, you got to look up your shit, be responsible. Don't just allow somebody to give you something and be okay with it. That's one of the, be your own health advocate. You got to be. And for myself, I really relied on all of the medical provider people that I'm, I'm friends with, which is really nice. I don't have, I don't go to formal counseling. Um, I I don't pay for formal counseling. How about that? Let's say it like that. But I definitely use my counseling resources and um, I really try to, I try to be cognizant of the fact that I, when I talk with a patient, I, I always tell them like, dude, listen, I can be just as easily on the other side of this desk. You know, I really could, but in a healthier way, I'm trying to deal with stuff myself. And, and, and all I want to do is give you loving kindness and help you as much as I can, because that's all I have to give. And it's sincere and, and truthful. 
that's that's exactly where I'm coming from. And not everybody responds well to that. Some people want somebody to be dogmatic and tell them, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. I don't do that so much. Um, I try to make people feel like they are responsible for themselves because you are ultimately, I don't need to be responsible for you. I can give you tips and tricks and ideas and helpful things, <laughs> but also, you know, we're all human and we all make mistakes. So you can't just be mad if you fuck up, right? Mad at yourself. You just got to get up jump back on that horse. And sometimes that horse is really high and you need a step. So find your step. That's a good way to end it. I like that. Well, Pollyanna, I I can't thank you enough. I, I've definitely learned a lot from, from the medical perspective. I want to congratulate you, not that you need it, but I want to congratulate you on getting yourself sober, you know, and away from addictive behaviors. Definitely a feat in itself, you know, so. But thanks for coming on. Thanks for, for sharing your story, for sharing your truth. And I, you're awesome. And I, I hope we get to do it again. Now you gotta. I forgot to have you plug your podcast again. Why don't you go ahead and plug your podcast again? Totally, we're totally doing this again. This is too much fun on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so remember, y'all. I'm Pauline Amazing. You can find me at BarryPleasures.com. Barry Pleasures on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, so many places and all of the major podcasting platforms. Please take a listen. And you can check out the videos on YouTube if you choose. I uh, I really. Appreciate you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We leave you now with this episode of Addicted. Just remember that there are many people out there struggling with addiction issues. And for every one person who finds sobriety, there are millions out there who haven't overcome this demon known as addiction. Thank you for listening to Addicted.